So there I am traipsing around. When it was time to when it was time to come back, that's when my problem started. So we, we, we've got to the border, the Pakistan border, and I've gone to the main place, showed him my passport, and I suppose understandably the man's confused as hell. I've got a British passport with an Indian name. I'm dressed like an Afghan. He's like, what, what, what are you? You know, sorry, you know, what are you? What, what are you doing here? And so then he realizes that I haven't got the, you know, correct paperwork. I don't have a, I haven't got the stamps and stuff. So he goes to me, right, I want to, you know, I'm going to have to pass this on to somebody else. And that's when alarm bells started ringing. That was Amadi Bassi speaking about spending 28 days imprisoned in one of the world's worst prisons. Bassi, a daring British investigative journalist and ex-HuffPost correspondent, found himself not just sampling the local cuisine and taking in the local sites, but also experiencing the inside of a Pakistani prison. Bassi is no ordinary journalist, his courage is as abundant as the variety of meat in a butcher's shop and he has used it to report from some of the globe's most perilous locations. However, his courage landed him in a tricky situation when he was arrested in the treacherous Pakistani tribal areas on spying allegations. The conditions he endured were so severe they would even make the toughest cockroach think twice, yet in true journalistic spirit, Bassi used his time to gain a unique perspective. In an ironic twist straight out of a novel, it was his simple wristwatch that led to suspicions of him being a spy. This in a country where guns and illegal drug trafficking are as commonplace as the daily cup of char. So brace yourselves as we plunge into the world of Amadeep Bassi, a journalist who found himself transitioning from reporting the news to becoming the news himself. Trust me, his first-hand account is not one you want to miss, so let's kick things off by delving a bit deeper into who Amadeep truly is. Uh, well, my name's Amadeep Bassi, just turned 50 recently, born and brought up in Wolverhampton in the West Midlands. Recently, the census figures show I think Wolverhampton's got a population of Sikhs uh, as a percentage of the, the general population. So, uh, yeah, been surrounded by a lot of Sikhs in my time. I'm the youngest of five siblings. Uh, my parents, like a lot of you know, first-generation immigrants, came in the late 60s. Father worked on the buses all his life in some form or another. Mother worked in a kind of steel factory and... Yeah, I've been a journalist now for coming up 30 years, which when I started in the early 90s, I was probably one of only a handful of black or brown faces working in the press, full stop, uh, in the national media. So, you know, it was quite difficult at times, um, you know, being the, being the lonely brown yeah. face. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I've always been a journalist, and, and unlike a lot of my peers at school who were into maths and technical stuff. I couldn't get my head around numbers and technical stuff. I was always a language person. So it was a bit odd. It was a, you know, I, I had a, a top knot and turban until I was 16. So I, I was a bit of an anomaly as in, you know, this guy wants to do English when, you know, generally speaking, Asians are supposed to do maths and engineering. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Uh, I always liked English and I thought, well, what can I do with English? Uh, I always liked reading papers. And again, like a lot of people of my generation, we were all kind of literally forced to watch the news when we were kids, you know, not watching Grange Hill, put the news on. So um, I've always had this affinity for news. And uh, yeah, for me, it's been uh, you know 30 years doing this job. And it hasn't really felt like a job, really. It, it, it's, it's what I do. Uh, Just going back 30 years then, how did you get into it? Like, so kind of, obviously you said that you had an initial passion for kind of English, but like, how did you go then from, from obviously thinking actually perhaps I can do this to actually getting in there like what was like your first kind of break so to speak well like I said I, I really you know when I, from sixth form I suppose sixth form school I really got into English in a big way as in yeah. watching you know reading different forms of it and I really like journalism all right reading newspapers etc 
And then it was a case of, well, how do I become a journalist? You know, well, what skills do I need? What qualifications do I need? And I discovered that you don't actually need a degree, uh, that you just need this one professional qualification, which is, you know, called the National Council of Training of Journalists Diploma, where they teach you the basics like shorthand, law, etc. Basically everything to, to make you equipped to get go into a job with a local newspaper. That's what I did. I, I went straight in there. And at the time, there was only about six colleges in the UK that did this NTTJ course. And so the one I went to was in Sheffield. Uh, and again, um, as I expected, I suppose, I was the only you know black or brown face amongst about 60 journalism students. But it was really good. I mean, I was in my early 20s. Uh, studying at college so it was like just going back to school again really yeah yeah well you were also mentioning that like obviously you were one of a very few number of people of color and then you also mentioned that kind of at 16 there was kind of a distinctive identity change in kind of how you presented yourself like so could you just talk a little bit more about what it was like I guess growing up in that time in that location kind of as a teenager and then also what was kind of the thought process behind kind of that change of identity around 16 because i guess it's quite a pivotal point in most people's lives yeah yeah sure well like i said i was born in baltimore Wolverhampton in the early 70s and you know again for like a lot of my generation and certainly one who's outwardly very you know noticeable i've got a top knot uh on a speak it was a hostile it was a hostile atmosphere or a perceived yeah. as in as soon as i left the house you're in enemy territory you know old women are looking at you funny uh people are generally you know the vibe giving off is you know, who are you, go away kind of thing. And you could feel it. Uh, and again, Wolverhampton, like a lot of the weapons in the early 70s, uh, had a presence on, you know, National Front, as it was then, skinheads, all that kind of stuff. And again, you know, some of my most vivid memories are of our windows being smashed, uh, you know, quite regularly. And it turns out it's the neighbour. Um, and so, you know, that was the kind of environment where it was almost, you know, you, we, we Sikhs, we stuck together. So at school, you know, it was purely you stick with the Indians. If you have a white friend, you're a pariah to your Indian friends. Uh, so, you know, I must admit, you know, my first real contact with white people was as a journalist. You know, my first real interactions as such yeah. uh, and having of talking to these this alien race almost uh, was, you know, well into my early 20s. Uh, but at 16, obviously, like I said, I, I, I was brought up a Sikh. You know, my Sikh, my, my parents were religious, uh, increasingly so as they got older. Uh, you know, very much a Sikh household. And, you know, I'd go to the temple quite regularly. I learned how to play the tabla. Uh, I could lead, read Punjabi. I could do Bart, et cetera, et cetera. I, I was very much into it. And then I became a teenager. And the external kind of influences, girls going out, drinking, being naughty, et cetera, et cetera, kind of came, came into view. And uh, it became a case. What, what actually done it for me in the end was, I mean, I, I didn't take to drink. Thankfully, I just didn't like the taste of it. But there was a there was occasions in my early years when I still had a turban, when I'd kind of glance at myself in the mirror and I'm holding a, a pint which I don't want to really drink, and I just thought this doesn't look right. You know, pick one or the other. Either it's the beer or it's the turban. And I'm afraid in the end I didn't pick either because I didn't go down the beer route. But I I just felt I'm not acting like a person with a turban should. So stop that pretense kind of thing you, you know yeah. you're not you're not about to become a baptized Sikh anytime soon yeah uh, and it was a kind of case of well I'll, I'll park my Sikhism up until later <laughs> you know now is the time for me to be a teenager um and I didn't give it any more thought than that but it was more kind of embarrassment I didn't want to give you know the Sikh appearance a bad name 
by you know here's a guy with a tib and yeah he's doing things that i'm i'm seek like um which kind of felt wrong at the time really fair 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 you mentioned kind of then how you got into journalism but yeah from when I was obviously doing a little bit of research in preparation for this, I would obviously have come across that you're a senior lecturer at a university. So I know it's, as you said, you've been like 30 years in journalism now. And I'm, I guess what I'm asking you to do is condense that into three minutes. But like, kind of how did you go from your first break in journalism to then doing what you're doing today, really? Like kind of what was that journey like? And save any kind of interesting stories you covered for for a question further on, because I'm sure that that's something that you'll remember. But yeah, kind of what was that like for you? Yeah, so like I said, I went straight from journalism college and it was almost like a baptism of fire, uh, as in I went to work for a press agency. So the normal route for people is they they do their NCTJ, they go and work for a local newspaper, you know, Coventry Telegraph, Express and Star, yeah. whatever, do a few years there, then maybe go to a London newspaper, you know, one of the nationals. Yeah. Uh, and then go on to PR, uh, you know, go and become a press officer for somewhere when you're ready to retire. Because generally, us journalists see press officers and communications people as failed journalists or that's something you, that's some after journalism. I know it's derogatory, kind of an injure. Um, uh, but I, I kind of, I didn't, I wanted to kind of fast forward that route. So I, uh, a press agency, and a press agency is like, it's just amazing. Basically, if, if you think about it, most of the news you read in the newspaper hasn't been generated by that newspaper's reporters. It's been bought from a freelancer or an agency. So there are agencies up and down the country that cover patches. So the West Midlands, for instance, if something big happens in the West Midlands, the London papers are loath to send up a reporter. So instead, they'll get copy from a press agency that's already there. So I was a press agency. And what that meant was you were working for the nationals. So you're working at a very high standard because you're writing essentially for everybody from the Guardian to the Sun. You know, you give them a very detailed report and they take out and rewrite it in the style of their paper. So you get very good habit in that you're writing at a very high standard. You're working at a very high speed because if you don't get your copy to them first, another freelancer will and you've lost out. So it really was proper, you know, stuff out there. I'll tell you stories, for instance, like, you know, back in the days, this is before mobile phones. You, you do your interview and then you'd have to, send the copy or the interview, you'd have to read it down the phone line to somebody who's actually typing it on the other side. And so you'd have to find a phone box. Um, and normally there'd only be one phone box in the vicinity or your competitor out there. And it would be a case of who gets to that phone box first. And uh, we used to do really bad things like I would file my copy and then I would smash the handset so that no other reporter can use that <laughs> and will be delayed. Uh, and it, it, it was as bad as that. And there'd be other things like, I suppose there's been a murder or, or something has happened uh, and you're not getting anywhere. You know, you've knocked some doors. Everybody says, go away. You're not getting anywhere. The kind of standard default was, well, you follow your competitors. See, where are the other reporters going? Uh, and I remember once there was, there was a, a murder. I can't remember what it was, but I, I wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to follow your position. So I followed one of their reporters for about a good few miles. And I said, oh, I wonder where he's going. This is well away from the scene. He must have a very good lead. Anyway, I ended up following him. He didn't, he didn't realize I was following him. I saw him going to a house and gave it a few minutes, knocked on the door, and he answered it. And I thought, my initial reaction is, God, you're well in with the family if you're answering their front door already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's kind of looking at me in bewilderment, and I'm looking at him thinking, how come you're answering the front door? Uh, and he goes, Amity, what are you doing here? I says, what are you doing here? He goes, I live here. I'll, I've gone home. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> it was that, that kind of... Fired, yeah, yeah. 
five. But at least he never, he never, he never caught, he never caught me following him. Yeah, uh, yeah, true. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was a real, you know, it was, it was basically what you learn in a press agency in six months, it'll take you three or four years at a, at a, um, a newspaper. So I did that. And then it was very hard work. It was, you know, you're constantly, you don't know what you're going to be doing. Your beeper goes off, you know, your pager back in the day goes off, you know, the plane has crashed somewhere or there's been a murder, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so you'd be running around from story to story, 24 hours, you know, the, the, the pay was not very good. Boards were high, as in, you know, every time you sent a story to London, your name's on it. People in London get to know your name, even though they change copy. Uh, and so I did that for a while. And then I, I'd never worked for a local newspaper. And the thing about working for a press agency is because you're working for everybody, you're not really accountable for what you write. Your name doesn't go on it. Yeah, the name of the reporter who has brought the story off you goes on it. And so you're a bit of a maverick. You know, I could go anywhere, knock a door and say, I'm here from the Daily Mail. I'm here from the Sun because I am, essentially. I'm there for everybody. And so I wanted a taste of kind of, you know, having responsibility for my stories, having my name on my story. I joined the local newspaper, the Birmingham Mail. I worked for their Sunday version called the Sunday Mercury. Every week I was doing a story which had my name on it. And it kind of, you know, just, just from there I started, I ended up doing kind of long form stories, which you could call investigative journalism. So I started, you know, made a name doing that. I became investigations editor for a while. Then I had a bit of a go up TV didn't last very long. I worked at Central News for a while. TV works in a different way. The journalism is a different way. It wasn't for me. And then about 2008, uh, pretty bad timing because the, the big credit crunch had just started. I turned freelance. Yeah, I've been freelance ever since. Um, it's been very good. It's, you know, my original, uh, I started off in print media, working newspapers since freelance. I've done a lot of broadcast. I've done a number of radio documentaries, TV documentaries, podcasts, websites, think tanks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then about five, six years ago, I started doing kind of part-time lecturing in journalism. And that just grew into a kind of a, a full-time job. I, I found it really, really rewarding. Uh, I teach MA investigative journalism. So the, 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 the students are a bit older, a bit wiser. They want to be there, paid for their course. Uh, and I find it really rewarding in that, you know, I, I get to do that and train the new generation of journalists because... Journalism, certainly local journalism, is really bad. It's 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 really bad. The dumbing down of it, the training of it, it's all about clicks. It's all about you know eyes on the side. Nothing well, about what what is interesting was um, it's like in my normal nine to five, we work in tech, and there was a meeting with a couple of people, and one of the people that had come in, I can't remember what the meeting was for. It must have been for like one of the websites we had or something. And one of, the, one of the guys opposite on the the table, he was basically like, yeah, I've created... So basically, if you go to, and I'm sure you're aware of it, when you go to any of these local newspapers' websites, so like the Cov Telegraph or the Birmingham whatever, Birmingham Mail, it's all the same layout. It's the same thing. It's just their like name or colours. He's like, we created that software and we are the people who basically push that out to everyone. So it's interesting when you mention the dumbing down of it because... Like the whole thing is, it's yeah. like almost like the TikTokification of news. Like it's just, it's yeah. like as ridiculous and as simple as they can make it um, is what yeah. is being pushed. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you, you know, it's got to the stage now where uh, Reach, which is the biggest publisher of local newspapers, they own all these, anything that's got live at the end of it, they own it. They're actually trialing uh, news bots. 
So that's, you know, some of the more straightforward news, say there's just been an accident and there's no chance of anybody suing you for libel, there's no complications, a bot will write it. And, and he's clever. Yeah, so, so for me, I was getting, well, you know, it didn't bother me that much, but it did get me quite angry that, you know, look how shit journalists are these days. Or, you know, as, as a young journalist, I remember how exciting it was in the early 90s to be a journalist. You know, you were out there knocking doors, you were finding things out, you know, you were using your people skills. Uh, and now, it's, you know, you've just got these young journalists who might have this idea of, I want to be a journalist, and they're tied to their desk, looking at social media, you know, mm. have no personal skills, will write a story that doesn't change anything, doesn't affect anybody, and they don't know how to, in you know, I'm maybe being a bit harsh here, obviously there's good journalists out there, but I certainly get a lot of, you know, get a buzz out of sort of teaching the new journalists that actually, no, don't fall into this trap of being a kind of working for a news factory where you're just churning out story after story and it becomes mindless after a while this is what journalism is about this is what you need to do and this this is where you find stories blah 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 because like i said from my background certainly when i see a lot of young black and brown faces now i, I just think from my own time when i first started uh because you know they, they were pretty stark times and i'll give you a few examples when i was working for the news agency obviously a story's broken my job would then be literally i've got to call up every news desk in london from the sun to the daily star and say guess what this has happened in birmingham do you want to buy some words and pictures off us? Um, and I'd have to systematically do this. And I recall the first couple of weeks, there was a really tragic story of a Sri Lankan guy had basically chopped up his wife and daughter and had travelled to Birmingham New Street train station and coppers arrested him. And in, he was carrying a suitcase and in the suitcase was the dismembered bodies of his wife and child. You know, horrific story, arrested, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It happened on a Saturday, and I remember calling up all the Sunday newspapers, you know, the News of the World at the time, Sunday Times. And I remember the I won't name names, but it was one of the News UK titles. I, I kind of, you know, said, "Guess what? This has happened." Blah blah. blah. I didn't mention he was shrank, and I just said, "A body's been found, dismembered body." Blah blah blah. And there was a bit of a pause on the other end, and the guy goes to me, "Ah, oh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, do you know if they're of the truer faith?" That's truer faith. I said, "I've got." You know, I'm not really sure what faith they are, but he's Sri Lankan, so he's probably Buddhist or something. Hmm. Laughing, and he goes, no, 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 uh, no, dear boy. I mean, are they white? Are they white? And I said, well, no. And the interest just waned. You could see, oh, well, just send a few paragraphs down. We'll have a look. Uh, and that kind of shook me a bit, thinking, really? You, you differentiate on whether something's news because whether it involved person of colour or not. And that happened again, and they'd use different code words. You know, he said of the truer faith, some would be even more blatant. They would describe anybody black or brown as low life. Are they low lives? And I said, what do you mean? You know, are, are they non-white? Are you saying all non-whites are low lives? Yeah. Um, and often these people would know that they're speaking to an Indian man. You know, they're speaking to Amadik Pasi. Uh, and, and other things like, you know, we have something called a Vox Pop, which is where a reporter will basically just go out onto the streets and interview people about whatever the topic of the day is. And newspapers would often hire me to do a box pop, and they would say to me, "You know, no offense, Amadi, but we don't want any black or brown faces." And it was as blatant as that. Um, having said that, I never faced any direct racism from any other reporters, and I don't know how I've managed it in these thirty years because I've been to some right racist areas. I've never had any racism from anybody on the street while I've been reporting. You know, I've been told to get lost, bloody scum journalist, but never scum journalist or you know, anything to do with my colour or ethnicity, I think that's amazingly lucky because I have done a lot of, you know, one of my specialities is extremism. I've done a lot on right-wing extremism. And, and again, it, it's quite interesting. I've got a lot of 
strong contact within Britain's right-wing movement. And the reason for that is they presume that because I'm Sikh, I must hate Muslims. A lot of the far-right agenda is anti-Muslim. And so they automatically presume, well, you must be sympathetic. And obviously I don't say I am, but I kind of you know, let them believe their own misconception. I will use any tools at my disposal to get access to, to people. So yeah, it, it's, it's, been an, and it's been an interesting time. But again, it, it's a case of, you know, these days there's been this big push for diversity in journalism. I can see that, yeah, there's more bums on seats, but do they have any influence? Do they, are, are they editors? Are they choosing this? No, they're not. They're just frontline reporters who get sent out, often only to do with stories to do with their ethnicity. So, you know, you've got Jaswinder there. Oh, send him out any brown story, Bengali or otherwise. But you're brown. You should know. A lot of it, I'm afraid, is lip service because, you know, those at the top, the elite at the top, the editors, the decision makers, they're still of the same broadly white, middle-class, well-educated, middle-aged, you know, so yeah, there might be some cosmetic changes, but are there any decision makers at the top? Not really. You know, this country, the black editor of a newspaper, I don't think it's about to anytime soon. But, you know, as I, as I say to any young journalist of, of colour, you know, Concentrate on being a good journalist first. Don't worry about your colour and about, oh, I only want to do black stories or whatever. That will come later. But you don't want to be pigeonholed early on in your career. You'd mentioned um, near the beginning that there was a difference when you uh, were working in the TV kind of space. Could, do you mind just elaborating on like what, like what is so different and like what was it that you found that you didn't want to do, if that makes sense? Yeah. You know, I came from a long-form journalism background where I would work on a story for weeks, potentially months, and sometimes I'd, I'd not have a story. You know, I've wasted months, but, you know, you, you get as much pleasure from realising that the story doesn't work and knowing when to stop, and you just didn't have that time in TV. Again, certainly local journalism, local TV, you've watched Central News. There's a lot, you know, there's so much going on in the world, but they will tell you about somebody's 80th wedding anniversary or something bright, if you know what I mean. Obviously, it's important for them. But really, you know, there's much more things going on than this person's, you know, this skateboarding duck or whatever you've got this week. Um, so it, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of, you know, wasn't deep. In, and again, I don't want to, you know, be sounding derogatory, but a lot of the local news journalists, they're actors, you know, they're, they're on TV. They're, they're, they're more concentrated on having a good appearance, and sounding good rather than the story being good. So, yeah, it, it wasn't for me. I mean, also, I said, I've dipped into TV, I've done panoramas and dispatches and this and the other, but the actual local, you know, local news journalism, TV journalism, yeah, it, it wasn't for me. It was boring. <laughs> no, fair enough. So, in relation to your investigative journalism, like, there must have been hundreds, if not thousands of stories that you've covered in, like, what, 30 years that you've been in that in that space. Like, are there a few that, have like, have stuck with you since are there a couple that like um you could kind of share that one the one question that people ask me what was the best story you did and you think god i don't know i read you know i, I forget i have probably written over a million words in my career and people have to rewind me oh yeah remember that story you did and i think oh god how did i how did i forget that but i don't know i mean my experiences in pakistan obviously you know stick out a lot i suppose the stories that change things the stories that actually had a you know, meaningful effect. It led to a resignation of somebody, or it led to. I mean, okay, the most recent one where I took a lot of rest, uh, a lot of satisfaction was a big investigation for the Sunday Times. It was a, the front page a couple of years ago where I, I kind of led the investigation. It was to do with boo boo and slave labour and textile factories in Leicester. 
and we managed to get a somebody undercover to work in one of these factories because all the other newspapers were interviewing factory workers after they'd left work and all that kind of stuff, but nobody had actually infiltrated or got an undercover reporter working in one of these places. So I did. We managed to get some really good stuff. He was, you know, he was being paid less than the national wage. We found really bad conditions during the time of COVID and there was no real COVID, you know, safety in place, et cetera. And, and it was the front page of the Sunday Times. And as far as impact is concerned, it was one of the biggest impact stories in that Boohoo's share price literally, you know, halved as a result of that story. And there was a direct correlation between my story and their share price plunging customers leaving them, people like Assos and Warehouse started saying, well, we're not going to do business with you anymore. And then what was really satisfied, satisfying was obviously they pushed back against it, said this was sloppy journalism, it was, you know, this isn't very, this isn't accurate, et cetera, et cetera. So they hired uh, their own very experienced barrister to look at how I had written the story and how the press had handled it, obviously hoping that this barrister would say it was sloppy crap journalism and blah, blah, blah. And she said the opposite, their own expert. <laughs> said it was good journalism. You're the ones that didn't act well and stopped complaining. Yeah. So you know it's very satisfying when you get, you know, and and basically where where, where I get this might sound cheesy, is but telling the stories that of people that are forgotten generally, you know, these hidden communities that never see their names in their newspapers, or like I said, the the people that the nationals call scum and low lives. I want to document their lives. Mm-hmm. People living in the ghettos, those people that are in. You know, involved in stuff that the general press doesn't want to, um, you know, cover. Yeah. So the little stories, you know, the little man stories. So during those thirty years that you've been in that space, like, what are some of the tips or tricks that you've learned along the way in terms of your investigative journalism? But if you were to condense it down into like I don't know, three or four, three to five tips, like, what would you say? Well, first I must say, the pleasure you get from a successful investigation. You know, when you've met all these cul-de-sacs and, and it's going nowhere and people aren't talking to you and things are falling apart and and then you finally crack it, there's no feeling like it. You know, it, it's be- you know, when people say to me, why are you a journalist? And I've always thought, well, what can I say to them? Why do you want to be a journalist? And I, I can really condense it into two lines. I like finding things out first before anybody else. And then just as importantly, I want to be the first to tell everybody. It's not, it's not for me knowing something and then not, you know, not being able to tell, I get my buzz from being the first to tell people. And so, yeah, an investigation is, well, journalism generally is about people. I can teach you investigative skills. I can teach you how to find people. I can teach you how to write. I can teach you how to interview. What I can't teach you is what goes to the essence of journalism is how can I make you say something that you don't want to say, something that, you're, something that you've covered up for the last 30 years my skill is to be able to get that out of you because anything else that comes out of your mouth is self-promotion to a certain extent. I mean, there's a really famous quote from George Orwell who basically says that. He says, news is what people don't want you to know. Everything else is self-promotion and advertising. And if you think about it, it is. You know, I'm there to get the stuff that you don't want me to know. I want to make you feel so comfortable in my complaint that you will tell me all your family secrets that you've been hiding Mm. because you trust me. And that's a skill that's hard to teach, this interpersonal skill of being able to put people at ease, being able to listen, being able to, you know, be honest. Again, that's a big thing, being honest, you know, less smiling hard, you know, don't lie, don't lie to your contact. So, yeah, at the heart of it is people skills. It's and, and certainly for investigative journalism, it's tenacity. 
you can't just say oh, I'm working because my my man's not talking to me so leave it find another man find a man after that man uh, that man if he knows another man and, and like I said the pleasure is, is is digging and digging you know ordinary journalists will dig maybe two inches investigative journalists will dig two feet and that you know that that really is it in a nutshell really like I said all about people skills it's about how how to have you know understanding human nature you know if I'm going to come and talk to you I've reason as to why you should speak to me no no well that first if this person says to me why the hell would i want to speak to this reporter you are all bullshitters i've got to have a reason ready for that person uh and it's and it's a different reason for all people um and and again obviously you know like i said you do need certain skills you know you need to know the law you need to know you know the parameters of what you can do and you know defamation and libel and all that uh but essentially it is about you know having that one little tip and, and, and just you know, digging and digging away at it until you've got something that resembles a story. Like I said, the, the satisfaction of, you know, a three-month investigation, and then you finally crack it, and you're the first person to have cracked it. There's no feeling like it. It's, it that's what, you know, journalists are in the business for. And, you know, again, as cheesy as it might sound, investigations tend to make a difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they might lead to a change in the law. They might change somebody's life in, in, in some way. It's more than just a you know a perfunctory glance or something. You're really looking and taking the taking the whole thing apart. So, yeah, you know, most investigations I've done, I've been very satisfied at the end of them. And a lot of them, like I said, will have come from a little tip off somewhere. Somebody's told me something somewhere. I mean, increasingly in this day and age, we get a lot of whistleblowers. You know, the best stories I've done haven't been from me digging. It's been from a whistleblower who's given me everything, so I didn't have to dig. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's where you get the best stories from is people who come to you. And these days, you know, with all this data around, you get these encrypted messages, or somebody's going to, you know, give me a data leak. A few weeks ago, somebody gave me some data from Jaguar that had been leaked about their workers. So there's a story, you know, data leak from Jaguar. So yeah, there's all kind of interesting stuff going on. So one question that's got the better of me because, as I mentioned, we work in tech, so data like. So what are the, like, the parameters around data? So obviously this person leaking the data, technically Jaguar have suffered a data breach. Yeah. And then you handling that data, like, so I don't know, I'm not actually aware, but like, how does that work? And can the, so forget Jaguar, for whatever company it was. Yeah. Can they do anything with you handling that data, considering it's theirs technically? But I guess the 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 kind of the voice in my head is also saying there's like some type of public benefit of that data being in your hands so does that outweigh the private then so the 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 golden rule that underpins investigative journalism is if it's in the public interest now you know this is 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 very important not of the public interest but in the public interest so lots of things are of public interest people want to know what kind of david beckham's hair is that's of, of public interest but is it in the public interest for them to know what David Beckham is going to wear tomorrow? No, it isn't. They can live without knowing that. Yeah. So, so for us, if something is in the public interest, like we're exposing wrongdoing, we're exposing hypocrisy, we're exposing corruption, then anything goes. I can, oh, I can override any data laws. I can override any defamation laws as long as it was in the public interest, and I can demonstrate that it was done in the public interest. So in this instance, if Jaguar had found out that I have got a copy of this before I'd printed it, they could try and get an injunction. 
I would go before a, a court now, a judge in a county court, and say and and give my argument as to the, the public interest. It's in yeah. the public know that Jaguar doesn't have safety when it comes to their data, that their data is easily breachable. That's in the public interest to know that. So, you know, we, we would have won the argument and the judge would have said, actually, okay, it has been stolen. It is in breach of data, but it's in the public interest to know this. And so that's how we get away with a lot of things is because it's in the public interest. So if it's in the public interest, I can, I can lie to a certain extent. I can, you know, I can pretend I'm somebody I'm not. I can surreptitiously record you without telling you. I can do undercover filming. You know, what I can't do, obviously, is play agent provocateur, as they say. I can't put words in your mouth. Yeah. I, can't, I can't make you do something that you wouldn't already have done, uh, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's the public interest that underpins the investigation. So, say for argument's sake, the data that you got from Jaguar had nothing in it. So, like, you read through it and there was nothing of public interest. At that point, because there's no story, there is no case. But could the company, if they knew you had the data, still do say or do anything? No, it wouldn't be in their interest to make a fuss over a story that didn't happen. Fair, yeah, that's why I thought. Okay, no, it's just interesting. Like as in that died, and it wasn't. It was, yeah, just curiosity gets better with me. Um, it, it, it's a good curious because actually everyone's curious. Journalism is such a kind of closed shop. No one really knows how we get our stories, how we do things. You know, it, it is quite, quite a mysterious industry. So over your 30 years, I'm sure you've spoken to a hell of a lot of people and had to do a lot of research and door knocking. Are there any people who stick in your mind still? Is there anyone that you're like, for whatever reason, good or bad? Like, as in, I'm not, not necessarily after the best story. I'm just after kind of someone you're like, you know what? I sat in a room with this person and I don't know, you, you could have been like, I felt warm. You could have been like the hairs on the back of your neck stood up. But, there there um, is a couple. I mean, again, I can't remember. I've, I've met thousands of people. A lot of them would have left their marks yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the ones that stick out. So my, my specialisms as a journalist are crime and terrorism and extremism. You know, all the toxic stuff, the interesting stuff. You know, I like violence and terrorism and, you know, things like that. So the people that stick out for me are two people that governments would label terrorists the first one being a guy called and forgive me i forget his first name but he's a he's a sikh Khalistani. diljit singh bitu i think is bitu is certainly the surname uh and i did a radio 4 documentary back in 2006 like that, maybe even earlier about the international sikh youth federation being banned by the uk under the terrorism act and bubba Khalsa being banned and as part of it i went to india to you know, speak to police officers there, to speak to militants there, ex-militants, etc. And um, I remember it was very much a cloak and dagger kind of affair. We had to meet in a certain place and whatever. And he, you know, I think he was possibly still even wanted for something at the time. He may even been on the run. And I was expecting a kind of you know hardcore, hard type of guy who's going to be kind of all shouty, shouty, and you know, very passionate and whatever. Um, and it was the opposite. I came across somebody who was very charismatic. There was something warm about him. There was something honest about him. I mean, I remember. I mean, I've, yeah, you know, as part of your interviewing technique, you, you, I wouldn't say you try and rile somebody, but you try and provoke an emotion out of them. So I remember asking him directly, "Have you ever killed anybody in the name of Khalistan?" And he never answered the question directly. I mean, you know, he'd be a fool if he said, "Yes, I have." <laughs> But the way he answered it was really good, as in he kept saying, you know, I've been arraigned for 24 murders, but I've never been convicted of any. So he's kind of left it in the air 
you know, and he just handled himself really well for somebody who hasn't had any media training, I imagine, and English is not his first language. He batted me off really well and held his own. And he was very loving. I just, just got this really warm sense from him. You know, he obviously realized you're a Sikh as well. You're from Britain. You're a journalist. He was quite commendable about me. Well, it's good to see Sikhs doing well. We're working for the BBC, et cetera, et cetera. And all of his arguments were, were reasonable arguments, were reasoned arguments, but it was a charisma. That's what it What were some of the kind of points that you put forward? Because for argument's sake, I never knew. And this is why I enjoy doing what I do, because I never knew that you've sat down with this person. And I've just quickly, whilst you were talking, Googled it, and I found the transcript. And so obviously, once we go off, like once this is finished, I'm going to go off and read it because like this sounds amazing. But for someone, I think because I think the difference, biggest difference between kind of my generation and your generations is, is that we grew up in a period post 84. And I think for the Sikh community, 84 is a massive yeah. cultural shift for our community. And I think I think one thing is like I can personally say I got into history because of the 20. Well, not into history, but into Sikh history because of the 20th anniversary of the 84 uh, attacks um, and there was like an exhibition at the local Godola and just the images just kind of were seared and they are still seared into the back of my brain and so for someone who's actually sat in a room and had to have a kind of a very direct conversation with someone who is central to the movement yeah what were some of the points that he put forward I mean you're right you know there's a certain I mean you're right you know there's a certain air of authority for somebody who's been there, seen it, done it, was there. And, you know, he was a bit of a poster boy for the whole Khalistan movement. You know, he's a young, strapping, good-looking yeah. man, you know, photogenic, uh, speaks well. And it, it was just the very matter-of-fact way he spoke about things. We never started this. You know, we, 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 we didn't ask for this turmoil. We didn't want to kill Gandhi. We didn't want our temple to be, you know, taken over by the RMA. We were helpless. We were driven into this. Uh, and the point he kept making again and again is when I kept saying to him, well, you know, there have been killings by Khalistanis. You have ground Punjab to a halt in certain times. There have been innocent Hindus that have been murdered, so-called by Khalistanis. And his point was, you know, quite rightly, uh, you know, how bad must a person feel that they do that? You know, we had, he was saying we had people who joined the Khalistan movement were young graduates, people who had a great career ahead of them, people who were trained to be lawyers and doctors and were going to go abroad. You know, just imagine how how emotional they felt that they threw away their futures to basically possibly die and maybe not even see the fruits of their, you know, labor. And that really struck home to me that actually, yeah, you know, they, they must have been very troubled. They must have been very um, angry. They must have been very passionate to abandon their own lives and take this path where they don't know where it's going to lead them. It's going to lead to them leaving their families. It's going to lead to divisions, etc., etc. So I thought the cause must mm. have been strong. Uh, and that was his main point that, okay, you're right. You know, there may have been some wrongdoings, but just think what drove these young men to do this? Things must have been really bad for them to have done this. Uh, and I hadn't really thought about it like that before, uh, I suppose. A lot of people who view the movement view it as one kind of huge ideological block. And one thing that I found is, is that it's, there is a movement, but it's made up of loads of different groups and factions. And some people are just completely independent, like as in, as you were saying, like there might be some dude who was training to be a lawyer and something's happened or whatever. Not just with the person you sat with, uh, with Diljit Singh Bittu, I think you said his name was, yeah. Um, but not not just him, but kind of other people yeah, you yeah. may have sat with and, and talked with.
talked with what is your impression is there is there actually kind of one yeah. kind of homogenous ideological block or is there more of a difference in some of their perspectives as far as the Khalistan movements concerned yeah there is and, and that's indicative of all movements as I said you know I do a lot of terrorism, whether it's Islamism, whether it's the Sri Lankan Tamil Tigers, whether it's you know far right movements, and there is this commonality between them in that they are they are not homogenous. Uh, okay, yeah. under the banner they might be all under you know freeing Kashmir or freeing Khalistan, but beneath it they all occupy their own space, really. So, for instance, in every movement you will have some that lean towards very political ideals. So, it, it, within the Khalistan movement, you've got an almost Marxist communists movement which is purely political and down to socialism and and the, and and the theocracy side plays a lesser part and it's more about equality and socialism and a political system and then you've got those who are total theocracy where forget the politics you know it's all about having Sikh rules and you know living by a, a Sikh way and so yeah it, it's never a homogenous whole they only come together under the wider you know wish for a separate state or whatever it is uh, and you know they all play their part you know some with the, the others they all need their little bits but as, as is always the case with any of these kind of revolutionary movements or separatist movements is the hardest thing to do is achieve that unity is to get everybody singing from the same hymn seat hymn sheet for a prolonged period of time you know they might be yeah, together for weeks point. for months or for one particular operation but to have that one and, and the enemy knows that the enemy knows that. talking about you know the indian state i suppose and I went to a, a kind of conference that was organized a couple of years ago. And the question being posed was, does the media understand Khalistan? And I was there to kind of represent the media. I mean, I don't know why they chose me to represent the whole of the media, but I was, you know, and, and I started off by saying, you know, I think you've got the question wrong. It should be, does the Khalistan movement understand the media? Not the other way around, because you don't. You've basically got this point blank thing of they're the enemy. We shouldn't have anything to do with them. And I remember speaking to somebody, uh, um, I won't name names, but quite a prominent young Sikh in the UK. And he was part of this uh, conference. And, you know, he started off very frosty with me, kind of, you know, well, you're a journalist, God, you're part of the problem kind of thing. But by the end of it, we were mates and we still are. And you could see actually there is a role for journalism. And you're right, we don't understand journalism and media and how it works. And can you tell us how it works and whatever? So, yeah, there is, there is this thing of, you know, the media, there is a use for the media and you've got to know your enemy, the media, you know, they're using the media. And as, you know, everybody says modern warfare, one of the problems is cyberspace, as you know, physical terrain. Uh, is there anybody else that you've sat with and been like, God, like, as in, because the only reason I say this is like, a lot of the times you watch, and I keep going back to these American crime documentaries because I've watched a couple on the weekend, but like people are always like, oh yeah, I said, like, especially people who have done some like heinous, crazy shit, like people who've known them in the past have been like, yeah, I used to, I sat in a room once and it just got cold. So I was like, yeah, that dude's obviously not right. Um, it doesn't have to be as bleak and bland as that, but like, is there anyone else? I've never had a, a situation where I felt I was cold or, you know, it's the opposite, the ones that stick out. And it, and it's not the famous people. Again, you know, I've probably interviewed certainly politicians and pop stars and celebrities. I've interviewed hundreds of them. They've not done anything for me. The other guy who did really kind of, again, airs on the back of your neck standing was a guy called Yasin Malik. Now, Yasin Malik is the leader of a Kashmiri independence movement called the Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front. 
He's got a very distinct look because he's been heavily tortured over the years by the Indian services. He's spent half his life in jail. He's quite young. He's quite frail. But by God, has that man got charisma? I mean, to look at him, he's five foot nothing, you know, thin as a rake, hardly speaks. But just being in the room with him, there was something going on. I, I was almost enthralled by him. And it's not like he's got any kind of engaging personality either. He hardly speaks. Uh, <laughs> he, he looks like he hates you the way he looks at you, like really suspicious. But there was something about that man which made me realize, no wonder you've got 10,000 people ready to die for you. He had, essentially. Uh, and again, I just liked his fairness. And this is, again, this is a man who has lived it. He's not writing a report about it. This man has been tortured for it. And and there's there's something about that, that, that you know, those people that have been in the thick of it, you can tell from their eyes, from their whole persona, that this person has lived what they're talking about. They're not some expert. They're not getting it third-hand or second-hand. And, okay, he's not got all the detail and the gushing, oh, I did this, I did that. He doesn't need to. You know, expressions tell it all. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's those kind of people that, that kind of, give me a buzz and think, wow. And again, you know, sometimes it's the most ordinary of person who's, who's overcome the most difficult of things. And you think, you know, you know, parents who have lost their children, that always gets me. You know, how, or, or, or you know, the number of court cases I've been to where uh, a parent has, you know, a child has been murdered. The parent is now facing the murderer in court. I think, why haven't you gone there and killed him? Have this guy slit your daughter's throat and raped her at 14 and you're just looking at him. Um, and I'm, you know, hats off to me. I say hats off, you know, I don't think they want any commendation from me, but you know, wow, how, how would you ever? Um, and yeah, you know, that that's up and down the country, the real heroes, again, without sounding too cheesy, are those people who have all the odds stopped against them. You know, they live in the ghettos, they've got a shitty job, they're being racialized against, but they carry on, they keep their head down and they carry on. So we were obviously talking about kind of the uh, work that you had been doing oh, and the people you've been meeting and kind of investigative journalism. And something that you had alluded to earlier was obviously your time in Afghanistan, I believe. Um, so can you just elaborate first on how you ended up there before we dive into what kind of happens further on? So I, like I said, I worked at a news agency first and then I joined the Birmingham Mail around about the late 90s, just before 9-11. Now, Birmingham obviously has a big Muslim population, young population, particularly Kashmiri, uh, which is heavily involved in Kashmiri politics as well. And so I ended up pre-9-11 doing quite a lot of stories about the Kashmir independence movement and how Birmingham is the headquarters of it, basically. And that brought me on to the more uh, radical side of Islam. And so I started getting in with a group called Al-Muhajirum, which uh, later on became quite notorious in sending out British Muslims to Afghanistan to fight against the Americans and stuff. And so I was already doing that, those kind of stories pre-9-11. So 9-11 happens. Five minutes later. But anyway, we digress. Coming back then, obviously you find yourself... Uh, so 9-11 happens, yeah, and then kind of what happened? Then, then yeah, what? So I'm already doing Islamic stories. So as soon as 9-11 happens on the Tuesday, I immediately call my Islamist mates in Birmingham, my contacts, and they, they, they tell me, yeah, wonderful news. Yeah, we really love it. Uh, we're, we're having a big meeting on Saturday. You can come. And I said, well, is it open to the public? He says, no, no other journalists can come, but you can come. So I said, all right. Uh, what's going to be discussed at the meeting? 
and he said, we're going to make an official call for British Muslims to go out to Afghanistan or wherever they're required and fight against the Americans, which was a big deal at the time, obviously. And so 9-11 uh, happened on a Tuesday. They've had a meeting on the Saturday. I remember it was a, a, a restaurant called Ladypool Road in Birmingham. And I'm the only journalist there surrounded by all these jihadist types wearing combat fatigues. And some of them look like they just come from jihad 10 minutes ago. And they're all looking at me a bit funny, but I had the permission of the main man there. Uh, and they made the call for British Muslims to go out and, you know, fight, etc. Uh, the story I did went all around the world. It, you know, every front page the next day said, you know, Birmingham Muslims plotting to fight against British, etc., etc. So anyway, I was working for the local paper, the Sunday Mercury. Uh, so when uh, America and the coalition forces went to Afghanistan to find bin Laden, the British army approached our newspaper like it did every other local newspaper and said, do you want to send a, one of your journalists out there with us? You know, a propaganda trip, basically. Look at all these orphanages we're building. Look how safe we're making Kabul, whatever. And so I was chosen to represent my newspaper and other local newspapers in the Mirror Group. So, uh, yeah, that was all. You know, it was an MOD-arranged trip. I remember we went from Bryce Norton and this big C-18 airplane, those big car cargo airplanes, all very exciting you know, landed in Kabul in the dead of the night in the middle of a war zone, all really exciting. There was about 12 of us, as you can imagine. Again, I was the only brown face. Uh, so we spent about four days with the army where we were being taken from, you know, different places. Here's an orphanage. Look how well we're doing. We'd interview an Afghan and say, yeah, we love the British. We love Americans. But then, you know, there's a soldier with a bloody AK-47 leaning over you. You're probably going to say that. And so the trip was going to be five days. And by about the third day, I was getting restless. I... You know, I'd always been fascinated by Afghanistan, this weird, amazing place, plus our own Sikh history, uh, Hari Singh Nalwa, Maharaj Ranjit Singh, you know, this unconquered place, the Khyber Pass, it had all this kind of romantic notions to me. Uh, and so, and plus I felt more of a target with the army. I thought there's more chance of us being bombed, <laughs> hanging around with these, you know, white British guys than if I walk around wearing a Kurta pajama because I look like an Afghan. And so... Uh, when it came to time to go back to the UK, I managed to persuade my news desk that, do you mind if I, instead of going coming back home now with the army, do you mind if uh, I'm going to Pakistan uh, and just see what's there? <laughs> um, and they said, well, you know, what, what are you going to do in Pakistan? And I said, well, firstly, I'm going to interview these British Muslims that have gone out there. Yeah. Uh, and then secondly, and it might sound outlandish, but I had as good a chance as anybody else of finding bin Laden. I mean, at this time, Bin Laden had escaped from Afghanistan. They didn't know where he was. They thought he, he was in this tribal areas. And I thought in my naive, young, adventurous way that, yeah, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll see if I can find him. And so that, that was, you know, that was what I told my news desk. So when it came time to come to the UK, instead, the army, British army dropped me off in Karachi. And this was interesting. The day I landed in Karachi um, in this army helicopter uh, from Kabul, um, I stayed there a night. The next morning, just as I caught my flight to Islamabad, a bomb went off in Karachi, killing 12 French sailors. So just bear that in mind. Uh, I then, under my own steam, make my way up to Lahore and Peshawar, where I, I had made a contact in England, somebody from the Human Rights Commission. And I said to him, look, can you arrange for me to go to Kabul? And what I wanted to do was go back to the same places I visited with the British Army and see what they say when there isn't a soldier with a gun standing around uh, and just generally try and you know try and get some real life interviews from real people rather than being embedded with the you know with the british or whatever 
So he said to me, yeah, that's no problem. He goes, uh, obviously, you can't go alone, but uh, I'm a member of the Afridi tribe, the biggest tribe in that area. You might know Shahid Afridi, the cricketer, but the Afridis basically control the Khyber Pass. They've never been conquered. The British had to pay them. The Sikhs had to pay them access to the Khyber Pass, etc. So they're kind of, you know, a really strong race. They're about possibly a million strong, but then they're into sub-clans. So the Afridi clan has about seven sub-clans. And they're all called kind of Zakakil, Ardumkil, something kill. They all got kill at the end of it. Um, so anyway, he said, look, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got cousins who live in the Khyber Pass. They, they will escort you to Kabul and back. So I said, all right, that sounds all right. So it's quite weird. So you've got, basically, you've got uh, Pakistan, and then Peshawar is one of the more, most northerly places. Once you pass Peshawar, you've got this kind of thousand-mile-long corridor of land, which is called the tribal areas. And no laws apply. Tribal laws apply. Uh, so everyone's carrying an AK-47. Everyone's smoking hash. So it's a real, it's a real weird feeling. So you go past Peshawar and then you see this sign that says "No foreigners beyond this point." Actually, it's misspelled, so it says "No foreigners behind <laughs> beyond this point." And it's like literally, as soon as you pass that point, it's like the lights have been switched off. All the hustle and bustle of Peshawar goes, and you're in this. There's hardly any electricity. You hardly see anybody around. It's deadly silent. Uh, all you can hear is a few explosions of some rocket-propelled grenade going off somewhere because they're all feuding. They've got so many internal tribal disputes that they're all bombing each other. For... They don't live in houses. They live in little fortresses, little and castles. And this is, this is a space between Afghanistan and Pakistan, a Pakistan. corridor. Okay. Yeah. And are corridor. we are we literally talking... Oh, actually, I think there was a lot of news about this when the West left Afghanistan and it was these areas which yeah. like, were yeah. basically like, yeah, try it. Yeah, so that was the area that Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden had slipped into and were hiding in. And here's me having the ear of the biggest tribe in that area. So I really did think if anyone's going to help me find Bin Laden, these guys will. Um, but that was just a kind of pie-in-the-sky idea in the back of my head, really. So anyway, I end up uh, you know, going into the tribal areas, going to a place called Lundi Kotal. The first place, first place, the first town you come to as soon as you get into the tribal areas, you see this massive mud fort that looks like something from the medieval ages. Really impressive, really big. And it was built by Holy Singh Nolwa. It was a Sikh fort. Uh, so Jamrud was his headquarters. And so the first place you go through is Jamrud. And I must admit, there was this excitement of, wow, I'm going to the land that Holy Singh Nolwa trod in. And, you know, that's his grave there and blah, blah, blah. So it was a real rush for me. Uh, but I was certainly aware that foreigners aren't allowed in the tribal areas. You, before you get your visa, you have to have a special visa to go in the tribal areas, and they wouldn't have given me one anyway. They, they rarely give, especially those times when it's the most dangerous place on earth. You know, nobody knows what's going on there. So there's me, kind of just stumbled into the place, haven't got the correct paperwork to be there, but I've got the protection of the biggest tribe. So I've got there, and I'm just drunk on freedom. It's the most free, freest place I've ever seen, as in you can do whatever you want. There's no laws. Everyone, you know, uh, it, people are carrying AK. So the first thing I wanted to do was give me a gun, let me fire it. So, you know, <laughs> I just grabbed an AK. And I was thinking, I said, well, just point it over there somewhere. I was thinking, just over there somewhere. What, what if there's somebody standing there? And it's just, you know, literally, you know, so once I got over my excitement of, you know, guns, freedom, blah, 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 uh, I told him what I wanted to do. So the guy who, who had taken me to the tribal areas was a, a local chieftain, Malik Dorth Muhammad, his name was. Really, 
fierce looking guy, very gentle, but he had this kind of Mongol look about him, you know, because there's a lot of, because that area, so basically the history of the place, the Khyber Pass, before, if you wanted to invade India overland, uh, you had to go through the Khyber Pass. So everybody who invaded India from Genghis Khan to Alexander the Great to Attila the Hun, they all had to go through the pass. And I remember walking through the Khyber Pass thinking, wow, I'm walking to the same place that Alexander the Great's armies went through and Genghis Khan's army went through. So it's a really, you know, historic place. And Lundy Kortal is the highest point of the Khyber Pass. And so I was I was there. And anyway, the Malik introduced me to his son. Again, instantly there was a connection. He spoke English. His name was Noshad. And I really liked the fact that he was really straightforward. He came up to me and there was no niceties about, hello, who are you? It's like, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, how have you ended up here? Uh, and so I explained it to him and, and said, look, this is what I want to do. I want to go to Afghanistan. I want to come back and you're going to take me. And he said, yeah, fine. So that night we had a really good night, man. We, they, they, they have their own, okay, they're Muslims, but their own tribal code supersedes their Islam. So they've got their own code called Pashtun Wali. And there's, there's hundreds of individual rules, but the two main th themes of Pakhtun Wali are revenge and hospitality, two extremes. So hospitality to the extent of, you know, as Sikhs, we also have this big thing of, you know, the guest is the king and your Quran should be after. They take it one step further. They will die for you. And if they don't, their tribe will ostracize them and demolish their house and banish them from the village. Um, yeah, and it doesn't matter if you're a, if you're a fugitive, if you're a stranger. If, if they take you in as a guest, they have to die for you. They have to look after you like better than your mother. Um, and so I'm a guest of this tribe. Uh, and so, you know, they've got a duty to look after me. So not a penny has exchanged hands. I haven't given them any money. They don't know me from Adam. They've already met me, you know, 24 hours earlier. But one thing that was striking was I've still got my gut up. I, I can't take it off. You know, I've had it since I was 14. It just doesn't come off. And as soon as every tribesman saw it my ranking went up because it was guess oh Sardarji. and it was like real respect they still remember the days of Ranjit Singh and Hari Singh Malwa and there's a bit of fear and a bit of admiration for our bravery as Sikhs and if I if I'd been a Hindu or a Buddhist I don't think I would have had that kind of welcoming reception or respect and that really kind of bigged me up thinking yeah I am a Sardar actually okay I haven't got the garb but you know uh, it kind of empowered me in a way and, and made me feel Sikhism in a different way, I suppose. Um, and so anyway, um, we had this really great night where they're drinking this homemade hooch that they make. They call it the uh, Khyber water. It's made from gunnin and stuff. And uh, we had a good drink. And I, and I had this watch. And bear in mind, this is 2002. I had this watch which had a camera in it. It had just come out, Casio, about 10 pixels, grainy, black and white, really crap, but still a gadget. And they were fascinated by it and they were passing it around and taking photos of, ooh, what's this time machine you've got here or whatever. And so we had a great night. Anyway, the next morning, it kind of hit me, right, we're really going to Afghanistan now. And they dressed me up in a, you know, Muslim shalwar kameez, I wore the Muslim skull cap, uh, you know, and I had to pull my Quran up in case, you know, they said, look, we don't know how other people are going to react to you as a Sikh in Afghanistan. So just keep that up and keep your sickiness, you know, out of the way. So... Again, we took a calculated risk. I didn't show any paperwork. I just basically, we got to the border. I knew I didn't have the right paperwork. And I thought, my feeling was, it's only a civil offence. It's not a criminal offence, not having the right documentations. And that, you know, knowing this part of the world, when I come back, I'll just pay somebody off and 
I'll be on my way uh, kind of thing. That was the kind of illusion I was under. So just when we were about to cross the border, I really started to shit myself thinking, shit, we're going here. <laughs> we're really going there. And not only are Al-Qaeda there, there's Americans, there's this, there's that, there's bandits. There's all kinds of people that want me. And I remember really sheepishly asking Noshad, you know, is this safe? Are we going to die out there? And I really liked his answer because you know how it's like. When we go to India, people tell you what you want to hear. Generally speaking, they're very loath to say, no, I can't do this. They'll always say, yes, I can, even though they can't or whatever it is. Or they will just mimic what you say because they want to you know, ingratiate themselves with you. So when I asked Noshad, I was totally expecting him to say, no, nah, everything's going to be all right. No one's going to die. We'll be okay. But instead he goes, look, I don't know what's going to happen. This is all new to me as well. But one thing I can say to you is whatever happens, whether we have a good time, whether we get caught and beaten and shot, I'll be by your side. I won't leave you. And I just, that blew me away. So this man's proper. He ain't bullshitting me. And okay, he's not hes not promising me much except his company when I die. But, <laughs> you know, I believed him. And, and, as, and as events panned out, he was a man of his word. So, off we went, you know, all happy. And now ah, we're in Afghanistan. And, and I remember we stopped in Jalalabad. And I stopped to do Matatek at a, a Gortora in Jalalabad. I met a few Sikh um, shopkeepers who were in a really bad condition. You know, they were dying to get out. I saw Bin Laden's old house in Jalalabad, etc., etc. So we had a really you know, nice little jolly time driving. Uh, one place, one thing was odd. Along the way, on the as you can imagine, there wasn't much traffic. You know, it was not an advisable route to be going down at that time. But every now and then, there'd be kind of, you could say, like motorway service stations, like a rest stop. Yeah. This kind of ramshackle building. And you had all kinds of weirdos. And there was like, I, the best way I describe it, you know, in Star Wars, they have that interplanetary bar where you got all these weird aliens from different places. It was like that. So you had all these barrel-chested guys, some wearing kind of Mongolian clothes, some wearing, they all look like medieval and carrying... AKs and swords and and I kept looking at them. I wonder what you're, you know. I wonder if you're Al Qaeda. I wonder if you're Taliban. I wonder who you are. And you know, I couldn't help but laugh to myself. Think, guess what? I'm from Wolverhampton. You'd never guess, would you? <laughs> but yeah, it was a dangerous route, and any one of those guys could have shot me and kidnapped me, and nobody would have known anything about it. So we eventually get to Kabul. I spent a really good couple of days there interviewing people that I'd interviewed before, and they gave me the opposite story. I said, you know, uh, actually, we hate the British. You know, the one thing I kept hearing from Afghans was that these Americans are cowards. Why don't they come out of their airplanes and fight us on the ground? You know, why are they bombing us from above? And the other thing that I really noticed was a lot of the opposition against the Americans and the British weren't terrorists. It was people who had lost family members through collateral. You know, a bomb's gone off. Their father's been killed. He's not a terrorist, but he lived in the area. Now they've become a terrorist because they want revenge for their father because revenge is big in those areas. And so they, they would be ostracized by their tribe if they didn't seek revenge. And so that, that was quite noticeable, that these guys that are fighting you, you created your enemies yourself a lot of the time. So there I am, traipsing around. When it was time to, when it was time to come back, that's when my problem started. So we, we, we've got to the border, the Pakistan border, and I've gone to the main place, showed them my passport. And I suppose, understandably, the man's confused as hell. I've got a British passport with an Indian name, I'm dressed like an Afghan. He's like, well, what, what the fuck are you? You know, sorry, you know, what are you? What, what are you doing here? Who are you? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, and so then he realizes that I haven't got the, you know, correct paperwork. I don't have a, I haven't got the stamps and stuff. So he goes to me, right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have to pass this on to somebody else. And that's when alarm bells started ringing. And, and so, 
And I could see from Noshan's face as well that this has gone above his, you know. Pay grade. Yeah, pay yeah. Grade. There's no passing a few rupees there. Uh, <laughs> so some military guy come, comes over and uh, he looks me up and down and he's aggressive. He chucks my passport at me. He goes, this is a forgery. He goes, you're an Indian spy. He goes, this is what they do. They get foreign, you know, they get foreign born Indians to do their work, but we're not stupid. And then I didn't realize, but India and Pakistan were almost at war against each other over Kashmir. And so he shows me, he throws me over a newspaper and says, look, you know, look what's happening. You know, your people are about to attack us again. They, you've been sent by India. And I, you know, you can imagine, I'm thinking, no, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a jerk. And then the guy sees my watch and says, right, this is a spying instrument. And I said to him, look, which, 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 which spy worth his salt is going to go around with a watch that clearly says wrist camera on the front of it? But obviously they weren't taking that. Then they look through my notebooks and I write shorthand. And they're saying, what's this spy code? And I said, it's shorthand, you know. No, no, it's a spy code. And so he gave me the ominous words, and I'll never forget him. He looked at me and he goes, uh, I said, what, what's going to happen now? He goes, we're going to have to process you. And I thought, process me? I'm not fucking can of baked beans. Well, you're not about to process me. And then Noshad turned around to me and said, you know, we're going to jail. And when he said, we're going to jail, I thought, hang on, I don't remember anybody saying you're going to jail. And so the, the, the guy turned around and said to me, right, get up, you know, put my... He put these kind of old Victorian shackles on me, now leg irons and stuff. And then Noshad turned around, and Noshad was with another guy as well, Kitab Shah, his friend, the two guys who, who took me uh, to Afghanistan, uh, Kabul and back. And they looked at the, the military guy and said, uh, you know the rules, this guy's our guest. If he's going to jail, we're going to jail with it, make some room. And you can imagine how I felt. Fuck me, why? You know, yeah, 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 what the fuck? You don't know me. Yeah, yeah, I haven't yeah. made money. I could be an Indian spy as far as you know. <laughs> but that's the rules and, and so the, the, the military guy said well okay I'll make some room for you and they stayed with me throughout my incarceration if they hadn't things would have been much different I would probably have been killed I would probably have been killed because I was you know think about it I'm in the in the tribal areas where nobody is it's where all Al Qaeda is it's where Taliban are it's where I am a sitting duck basically there I am a westerner of Indian origin sat in a jail i'm a sitting duck you know and so uh no shad and uh um, Kitab shah both you know got in the jeep with me and i'm still trying to process thinking why are they doing this is this a setup you know are yeah, they yeah, the yeah, ones? <laughs> yeah 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 because yeah. you know, i just couldn't compute you know your a family member wouldn't do that for you let alone a stranger and so anyway we arrived in jail late at night and as you can imagine it wasn't the best of places uh it was you know a ramshackle building there's about 60 people in the cell where there should be seven and the whole jail was waiting for us. Word must have got round that a British man's coming. And I think they were a bit disappointed because I wasn't white, you know. <laughs> uh, and so they saw me. I, I must have been, I was just numb. It was like a dream. I, I just, I, I, you know, I just couldn't fathom how I ended up here, kind of thing. And you got all these prisoners rushing towards you, you know, wanting a piece of you, touching you, whatever. Uh, but no shad was in his element because... A lot of these guys were his cousins. They were part of his tribe. They all knew each other and whatever. And it was like one big family. And so, you know, he kind of put me at ease. Uh, but then on the second night, there was quite a uh, unusual thing happened where I got uh, a message saying that the so-called daddy of the prison, uh, oh, yeah. Isa, Isa Musa was his name, Jesus Moses uh, translated to. And I kind of clocked him and he looked a bit mad. He was a big lad. And he, he kind of got his separate area and he'd got his few kind of jam with him, his whatever. 
uh, always massaging him and stuff and whatever. Anyway, he's called me into his room for a one-to-one. -one. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I remember looking at Noshad thinking, come on, Noshad, come with me. And he goes, nah, mate, you've got to deal with this one on your own. Um, and, and again, all he said was, look, you're not on your own. Okay, I'm not going to be in the room with you, but I'm with you. You know, I'm listening to the door. You know, don't think you're, you know, if anything bad happens, we'll come in. But you've got to deal with this yourself because you've got to be a man, basically, you know. You can't show any fear or anything and, you know, whatever. And again, it really gave me strength. Every time I felt like crying, which was like every 10 minutes, uh, and, and looking like a nervous wreck, people would point my gut out and say, why are you nervous? You're a Sardar. What's wrong with you? And it kind of embarrassed me to say, actually, you're right. Why, why should I be whining in the corner? I'm a Sardar. So, you know, that was really gave me a lot of strength, that did, just to try and keep up appearances, if nothing else. And then, anyway, I walk into this room. It's all dark. There's a fan going on in the background and whatever. And it all starts off quite nice. He spoke English very well. He goes, you know, where are you from? London. And it's, oh, London, BBC, Trafalgar Square. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> and then I said, where are you from? And he goes, Hamburg. And as soon as he said Hamburg, I thought, shit. Because that's where three of the 9-11 hijackers were from. Mohammed Atta, the main ringleader, was from Hamburg University. So I'm thinking, right, we've got a serious one here. And I said, so he goes, uh, he knew that he knew the the details of my arrest and why I'd been arrested for that, mm. and, you know, proper paperwork. I said, so why did you get arrested? And he goes, well, I was fighting the Americans. I traveled from Hamburg to fight the Americans. They caught me. They've tortured me. I'm probably going to end up in Cuba. And if they release me, I'm going to go straight back there and start killing them again. So I thought, right, fair play. And then things turned a bit weird. He suddenly noticed my gut up, even though I had it pulled up right down there. And he goes, oh, you're Sikh? I said, yeah. And then he goes, uh, right, he goes, this is a Muslim jail. You're not in London anymore. Uh, there are certain rules. You're going to have to do as you're told. So I thought, okay, what does that mean? And he goes, you're going to have to do as I say. I said, okay, what does that mean? You're going to have to become a Muslim. And you can imagine, you know, all I'm thinking about is the old days of the Mughal Raj. And, you know, here's a Muslim telling a Sikh to, to, what's the word, convert or potentially die or have a difficult life. Obviously, it put me on the spot and, you know, I thought and I, I didn't immediately answer because I think, well, what the, you know, I can't say to you, yes, I'll become a Muslim because I can't, you know, I'm not going to do that. But part of me is obviously self-preservation, do whatever it takes to stay alive, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. And so I remember, I don't know where it came from, but I kind of just said to him, look, I said, look, you're a Muslim, you believe in Allah, you believe in one God. I'm a Sikh, I believe in one God. You call him Allah, we call him my Guru. If that means, if that belief in one God makes me a Muslim, then okay, I'm a Muslim, call me a Muslim. But I'm not, I can't be doing the Shahada or any kind of, you know, ceremony or something that's going to make me officially a Muslim. I said, I, you know, that that's it really. And I kind of stopped at that. And I think he was a bit surprised by my answer as well. He didn't really know what to say. And he kind of looked, looked me up and down and he just went like this. And said, okay, leave. And that was that. And later I had this really, you know, warm feeling thinking, actually, I do believe in Sikhi more than I thought I did. And that when push came to shove, you know, was I willing to give my life up for it? Probably not. You know, maybe if he'd done it at knife point, I might have said, right, tell me what the words are. I'll become a Muslim now. <laughs> but in that circumstance, I just thought, nah, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Uh, and he seemed to take it on the chin. And I think also, you know, maybe I'm you know, bigging myself up too much. 
he also knew that I'm protected by Noshad and Noshad is a somebody in that area. And that, you know, if I mess with this guy, I'm messing with my, my man's tribe. <laughs> and, and again, it was, it, that really saved me having the protection of Noshad. People weren't going to do anything bad to me because if they, so if it's a mess with me, they're messing with Noshad. And, and I this remember, Noshad is a friend's cousin, isn't it? Yeah. 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 My age, and so, you know, and spoke good English, was a socialist. You know, he wasn't, a, he was a Muslim, but he was, a, you know, he, he was smart. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We got on really well. And, you know, he, 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 he protected me every part. And, you know, I, it was hard for him. You know, here's a local protecting an Indian who could be a spy. What's he doing for East Street cred mm. in the tribal areas? You know, and so uh, only later it struck me that that man must be having some serious pressures himself. You know, he could have walked out that jail whenever he wanted to, but he didn't. Because he had to protect me, or he felt he had to protect me, but I could see the pressure on him every day. It was getting to him. You know, he's a man of good pedigrees, the son of a Malik, and he's here. You know, um, and so he was playing a lot of politics above my head. You know, later he told me there were people who wanted to kill you in there, and we had to make deals with them. And you know, he never told me this at the time to kind of protect me from it all. Um, and, and and you know, the 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 the, uh, the ISI. I don't know whether you've heard of them, but the um, uh, Pakistani intelligence services, my God, are they good? They're bloody good. They are smart. They're really good. They, uh, they're the ones who interrogated me. And obviously beforehand, I had this vision of ISI. They torture people, they kill people, which they do. Uh, but they treated me very well. Uh, they treated me, they, they said to me later, look, we knew within hours that you ain't no spy. But we're sorry, we had to mess you around because you're Indian. And it was as blatant as that. You know, the the phrase he used, he said, uh, uh, So basically, sorry about that, but enemy of the enemy, we had to mess you around just kind of send a message to India, even though I'm not Indian as such. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to say there is no message really, <laughs> but I see what yeah. they mean though. They're like, you're from there, I guess. But then the other interesting point was, when they first started interrogating me, the ISI, and realized I was a Sikh, they started asking me about Kalistan. And when I said, I didn't know how to play it. So when I started, I said to them, Kalistan, what is it? You know, I don't know, what are you on about? Yeah. And, they, and they said, you know, I remember him saying, Port Alaban, you know, you know what Kalistan is. Uh, and then I said, okay, look, I might have heard of it vaguely, but, you know, I live in Wolverhampton. I, got, I don't care about Kalistan. And then, they got angry. They said, why don't you care? <laughs> I, can't, I can't get anything right Yeah, here. yeah, what answer do you want? <laughs> they said, you know, look what's happening to your people. Look what the Indians are doing. Don't you care? And then I thought, okay, maybe I should care. And I said, well, yeah, I do care. And basically, the impression I got is they wanted to use me. If I was a Kalistani or showed any inclination, they had plans to use me as a spy or to do something to India or something. And it also reaffirmed to me that ISI and Pakistan to a certain extent may be funding the Khalistan movement are probably funding elements of because it means obvious the enemy of the enemy is my friend you know the Indians are supporting the Baluchis for their independence movement in Pakistan so Pakistan are going to return the favor by supporting separatists in India it, you know that's how world politics goes on uh, but to actually you know have it confirmed almost um, and so yeah I spent a week being interrogated by the uh, ISI that was bad because I was only in it for a week, but I was pretty much in solitary confinement with no light and no exercise. 
and you lost track of the time of day and it, it, it it's bad you know you know after a week of that simply coming out and seeing sunlight and seeing the grass and seeing birds it, it was like amazing and that's just after a week of you know sensory deprivation um and then so yeah so we, we, we carried on and finally one day you know every day they kept saying to me oh you'll be out tomorrow you'll be out tomorrow and tomorrow never came and i must admit I'm, there was, at one point uh after i've been there on about four weeks or so a feeling came over me of um, acceptance as in look i'm here there's nothing you can do about it they could hang you tomorrow they could jail you for life you could be released but none of it's in your hands so and this real peacefulness just washed over me kind of letting go where i was just existing now i was simply existing i was eating drinking and there was something really nice about it like a real clarity about life where i you know i was really living or even though it's hard to describe you know yeah, no, I'm no, dead you, the inside. Well, i don't know what you mean but i can i can but kind of intellectualize what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah. That, that letting go of, yes and it's almost like i can transfer it to we talk about uh, God's hookum. Yeah, yeah, acceptance. It was this kind is of the situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, your, I'm your vessel. Take me where you want. <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and it was a good feeling. Uh, but anyway, all of a sudden, one day the, the, the cell doors opened and they said you can go. It was. And a how long thing. have you been in the cell by this point? Just over four weeks. Fucking hell! And I'm assuming it's not like a British prison, even no. though British prisons are still pretty <laughs> shit. But yeah. like, just to give people who aren't necessarily too familiar with what it may have looked like, um, just give us a brief description yeah. of it, please. Well, well, the first one, one in Lundy Kortal, that wasn't too bad. That the, the prison was basically the old British governor's house, so it had an old Victorian fireplace. It had, you know, it was like an office or whatever. But it was held. It was designed to possibly hold a family. You know, ten, twelve people. There were sixty-six prisoners in there. Uh, and basically every inch of space on the floor when you went to sleep was taken up. You were literally cheap by jowl with people. Uh, the light was on 24 hours a day. Bear in mind this was May, so outside the temperature was like 44 degrees and stuff in Peshawar. Uh, and you've got just got this, you know, I mean, you watch Midnight Express. It was like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of yellow crumbling cells. Uh, towards the end, when I thought I was being released, they put me in the worst cell possible. They put me in a cell, which was literally five foot by five foot. When you put your hands up, the the fan would catch your hands, so you couldn't have room to move. And I was, it was designed for three prisoners, uh, and there were seven of us in there. And what was funny was, well, it wasn't funny, but there was this re, there was this old guy in there, old Muslim guy, and he hated my guts. Anything I'd touch, he would throw it away because I've I've contaminated it as a non-Muslim, uh, and he he just couldn't stand me. Um, Anyway, I start. I remember asking some people. I said, "Well, he's fucking eighty. What the hell is he doing in prison?" And they said, uh, "The man's got no honour." I said, "Well, you can go to jail for having no honour. How do they work that out then?" And they said, "What it is is he had his first wife had died. He took on a young bride, much younger than him. He'd caught her uh, in bed, literally, with somebody, a younger man. And now, under the tribal laws, he's supposed to kill the wife and the lover. He only killed the lover." So he's basically been jailed for not having killed enough. <laughs> because he didn't kill the lover and only kill sorry, because he didn't kill his young wife but killed her young lover, he was jailed for breaking the code. Why didn't you kill the lover as well? You've got no shame. Oh. You've got no honor. 
And so you can actually be jailed for not having killed enough. Um, my mind is a short circuiting, but no, fair enough. I I see where their what their their yeah. their rules. I guess I see it. I see it for. And then, then there was this poor Nigerian guy there, black guy, and I swear to God, the the the, the guy, the other prisoners, you know, they're all from villages. They've never left their village. They don't know anything about the world. They really thought this black guy was an animal. They were touching his hair and and they were asking me, "Yeah, John, but yeah, but yeah, he's a he's a bunda, you know." Uh, in, in that Galaranka there, and I said, well, you know, just like in Karachi, they're a bit darker because they're closer to the equator. Well, this man lives right on the equator. And they just couldn't get their heads around that this guy's human. And when I left jail, he was still there. I remember I, I asked him, I said, what the hell are you doing here? And he gave me a bullshit story. He, 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 I said, where are you from? He goes, Nigeria. I said, what are you doing in Pakistan? He goes, I've come here to seek political asylum. Who the fuck goes to Pakistan to seek political yeah, asylum? Nobody. <laughs> Especially from Nigeria, like that makes exactly. very little sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gone basically for the drugs. The tribal areas is where all the heroin processing labs are. Oh. So, yeah, and, and yeah, so anybody who's in the tribal areas generally. So, everyone in the tribal areas is smoking hash and getting high on opium or, <laughs> and like other poppy derivatives and yeah. like. No wonder the Americans couldn't beat them. They're just high as fuck, <laughs> isn't it? Like they're just like like as in as in because I think what you're what I've just got, what I've picked up on as you've been talking is they've got a shit ton of balls. Like their yeah. balls are just absolutely massive, but yeah. they're also highly loyal. They're highly yeah, kind of yeah. loyal to one another, and I think you you're not messing with that really, are no. you? And especially when you then throw in a bunch of drugs and loads of guns. Like yeah, I, I remember the ISI people when they they, they call. The, the area, the tribal area in uh, Pakistan, in Urdu, is called Ilakagad. Okay. Ilakagad, the strange place, the out-of-bounds place, the mysterious place, the place you don't go to. And, and I remember when the ISI interviewed me, and they, they looked at me and said, what the hell was you? We don't even go there unless we're in groups of 10 plus. What the hell was you doing there? How have you managed to stumble into the tribal areas? And you're not even a Muslim. Yeah, said, yeah, well, yeah. I said, I don't know. You know? <laughs> They were saying, you know, did the tribe kidnap you? I said, no, 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 they, they protected me. And it was like, how how has this happened? Um, but yeah, it was, you know, looking back at it, I can say it was a brilliant experience. I mean, you know, where do you make friends like that? You know, who's going to go to jail for a stranger like that? So just going back then, how did you get out? Like what secured you getting out? Obviously, they said that they figured out you weren't a spy, but they could have very... Yeah, they could have been. Yeah, they, they could have just been like, anyway. "Fuck it, we'll just keep you yeah. anyway." You're British, like you're collateral. <laughs> yeah. As soon as well, yeah, yeah. you're also a bargaining chip at that yeah, point because yeah. you're British, right? Yeah. So how did you get out? And did, like, for argument's sake, I think some people may assume having a British passport may have worked in your favour, but did it actually? And what helped you get out? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what it taught me is that there's two types of British. There's the white British, and then there's the rest of us, and we're not as important as the white British when it comes to our lives and protection we're afforded by the British government. Now, I'm in, bear in mind, I'm in Lundy Cawthorn, in the tribal areas, the most dangerous place in the world at the time, by myself. It took the British Embassy 12 days to visit me. And when I asked the guy, why the hell is it taking you so long? He says, well, you know how it is around here. Security is really bad. And I was thinking, you're the bloody ambassador. I'm here by myself. Think about my security here. You know, if you think security is bad for you and you're the ambassador, what about my security? Uh, and then he came over and he, he made it pretty clear. He said, look, he didn't say it like this, but he basically was saying, look, we're only here because you're a journalist and your newspaper's making a lot of noise and getting politicians involved and there's a campaign to release you. 
Uh, if you weren't that, you probably wouldn't be here. Um, and again, the very man- matter of fact way. So look, they're accusing you of uh, of spying. Uh, you know that at the worst they can hang you, but uh, you know, uh, uh, if or they could jail you for life. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, yeah, I really need to know that. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, if they do jail you for life, we guarantee that we'll visit you at least once a year. I said, all right, thanks very much. And then what really got me was he looks me up and down. He goes, have you been tortured yet? And I thought, well, actually, I haven't been tortured. But the way you're talking about is the torture coming. Um, and that really threw me because I was thinking, no, I haven't been tortured. But you're saying, well, you haven't been tortured I should yet. be, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, was yeah. Almost, he was almost disappointed that I hadn't yeah. been. And so that didn't leave me in any great condition. But one thing he did do, the fact that Agora had come to see me raised my street cred in the jail that this guy really is British. This guy really has got connections to politicians. We better not torture him because he may be a somebody. But if I'd been white, I can guarantee you that ambassador, I wouldn't have spent a day in jail. I'll tell you what, a comparison. The other prisoners were laughing at me. They said, look, just before you got arrested, a French journalist got arrested in exactly the same circumstances. He didn't have the paperwork. He'd gone into Afghanistan, was trying to get back to Pakistan. His ambassador came immediately. He didn't spend a second in jail. Why the fuck are you still here 12 days later and nobody's come to see you? Says it all. Yeah. Says it yeah. all. So it really made me think, yeah, I'm as British as my passport and that's about it. So whilst you're in prison, obviously you've got the protection of Noshad and his friend who's, I don't know why they've decided to join you in prison, but like a proverbial hats off to them for that. Um, how hairy does it get? Besides the situation when the guy calls you into the room and kind of, I guess in in to paraphrase, essentially asks you to convert. Um, is there any other point where you're like, "Fuck, this might go, this might go south quick." Every, every day, because basically the cells I was being held into were remand cells. So every twenty minutes, a new prisoner's coming or someone's going. Oh, and shit, every new prisoner yeah. that came, I'd think, "Is this the Al Qaeda hit squad that's been sent to get me? Is this the one? Is this the one?" You know. And anybody, somebody looks at me funny. Why are you looking at me? Um, you know, you had people who were opium dealers, you had people who were Taliban, you had people who were opening Al-Qaeda. And every time that door opened, I'm on my toes thinking, is this the guys? Are they the ones? Um, and so, yeah, I, every day was, are they, are they going to get me tomorrow? Are they going to get me today? How are they going to do it? And, and so, yeah, any new face would startle me. And that's why I said, if no shadow wasn't there, I would have been buried <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, within, yeah. within days. And they stayed with you for the whole four weeks. Yeah, never left my side for a minute. And, and I'll tell you what was really good as well. Towards the end, when I was, uh, you know, I've been there three weeks or so, and we'd, we'd been sent back to Lundy Kortal. We'd been interrogated by the ISI, sent back to Lundy Kortal, and the leader of his clan came. So his clan is called the Zachachil. So within a fleet, you've got these seven clans. The biggest one is the Zachachil, and they're the most notorious ones as well. And her really, and trust me to fall in with them. Anyway, their their leader, Darya Khan is his name. You know, he's in charge of a you know tribe that's tens of thousands strong. You know, controls the cover path. Anyway, he came to London Court and it was weird. It was so surreal. So he comes with his armed entourage, and all the prison guards and the governor put their guns down, and they're all kind of humble, almost mutter taking as he walks past. Oh wow! So he breezes into the jail with his own armed guards. Uh, the whole of the jail is looking at him and again it raised my credibility up because all the you know the malik has come to see the britisher you know but it made me it big me up uh 
And so he comes and, and you know, me and Noshar, they're bought out. The governor, meanwhile, he's all like this. It's thinking, who's in charge of you? Or, the, or this guy. Uh, it was clearly the, that guy. The, the, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so, so anyway, he's talking to me and whatever. He's saying, all oh, right, no, because sorry, you know, things have got a bit out of my hand. You know, you know, it's gone to a governmental level. They're accusing you of being a spy and all this. And he goes, I don't give a shit if you're a spy. You're under my tribe's protection. Spy, shmy, I don't care. Um, and, you know, they will not lay a finger on you. I can guarantee you that no one will touch you while you're here. I said, all right. And then he turned around to the governor and you could tell that this man meant it 100%. He said, Alaudin, uh, uh, which was his name, he goes, Alaudin, I'm giving you two weeks. If this man isn't released, I'm just going to walk out with him. And he knew, and the chief knew that that's exactly what he's going to do and no one can stop him. And, you know, and I thought, wow, that's how power works. And he would have, he could have literally just walked in there and walked out with me. And if Pakistan want, government wanted to do anything about it, they'd be at war with the tribe, which they don't want. Right. Uh, so Mad. again, I always thought, at the most, I've got two weeks in this place because Dariya Khan's going to walk out and, you know, just literally take me out of here after that. So yeah, all these odd little things going on. That's nuts. So, for I think for anyone who spent any time in jail, a lot of times the question is, how did it impact you? But for someone who spent four weeks in a jail in the middle of, I guess, what is the probably one of the unsafest places on the planet, how like how did it impact you? And like, like I don't know. Like I guess people may also be wondering, like, have you recovered from that? Like, as in, or like, or is it one of those things where it's just there? Yeah, it's it's just that, and, and with anything else, you take what you want from it. I could be all down and depressed, and oh, they did this, they did that, but you just be yourself. I mean, you know, I, I could have kicked up a first person and said, "Look, I want to be on myself. I'm British. I don't want to be in this jail. Treat me differently." But I didn't. You know, where I did have a chance at one point. I remember the governor of the prison said, "Look, you're British. You're probably not used to this gun. But, you know, you can stay in my house next door." I've got a toilet, I've got a TV, I've got a bed, you can stay there. You're still under arrest, but, you know, you can stay there. And then I turned around and I said, can Noshad and Kadabshah go with me? And he said, no. And so, you know, I couldn't turn around and say, okay, yeah, thank you, yeah. I'm going off to my luxurious bedroom. Um, so I, I just acted like everybody else. I didn't ask for any special. I was polite and, you know, my normal self to everybody, whether they're Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Paul, Rich. And I think that came across that this man's transparent this man's not a spy this man's not malignant or malicious in any way um but the way the, the mental mark it left on me I, I, I'd, I'd always been quite laid back maybe too laid back sometimes yeah but like i was saying you know that moment where i had of release of yeah that, yeah that stayed with me of how could anything matter when you've been through that yeah yeah true true <laughs> true, true, true 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 completely completely uh, and again, it just, just told you gave me confidence in in the brotherhood of man. Yeah, yeah. you know yeah. that there are connections you can make with anybody under the guise of being human. So, what were the ramifications once you get out the chair, or once you get back to Britain? What are the ramifications of it? Like, is there any kind of I don't know. Like, I don't know quite what. As in, like, was there any kind of toing and froing between governments or countries, or kind of what nah. happens? Well. Uh, I was when I got back. I was debriefed by British security services who wanted to know again how the hell did you get there? We can't get there. How did you get there? And then it kind of I won't go into too much detail, but I, I got involved through the British security services to the American security services. Um, 
who again were very interested. You're in the tribal areas. You're with the tribe, that, the biggest tribe there. We know Bin Laden's there. Um, but, you know, I, I stayed away from all of that because, you know, if, if the CIA mess you around, who do you tell? Who do, do I call the West Midlands police and say, the CIA are messing me around, come and get them, you know? So uh, anyway, that was that. So there, there was a bit of that. Uh, it, it gave my career a bit of a turbo boost, I suppose. You know, here's a journalist who's been jailed for his work. Um, there was a lot of journalists who were jealous. You know, we've been dying to try, get into the tribal areas. How the hell did you get there? I said, well, I didn't do it on purpose, mate. You know, I didn't want to go to jail. Um, and, you know, the access I got, they were like, oh, you, you spoke to real Taliban. You spoke to real, you shared a cell with Al-Qaeda, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, journalistically. And the other thing, again, you know, like you were just saying, um, I was doing, a, my specialism was crime. So I was doing a lot of stuff about street gangs. You know, in Birmingham, we've got these Burger Bar boys, Johnson crew. We've got these Asian gangs, the links they used to be, the Aston Panthers, et cetera, et cetera. And it gave my street cred a lot, as in, they were saying, this man's done pen in bloody Pakistan with the Taliban. You know, we think doing Winston Green for a few weeks is, is big. This man's done it in fucking, you know. Jokes. So my street cred went up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's quality. That's, yeah. I guess, a positive ramification yeah. of it in some ways. Yeah, so, yeah. so people, gangsters, were willing to talk to me because this man's on a level, man. This man's done Yeah, dirt. he's done real time. <laughs> like, he actually knows yeah, what it's yeah. like on the other side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mad. Okay, so, that's nuts. Yeah, that's that's pretty jokes. Yeah, but uh, what's happened to uh, like? I'm assuming you're probably still in contact with Noshad and his friend. Like, how are they, and what happened to them? Well, uh, f- funny enough, they were kept for another two days after I was released. Um, oh wow! They they said we're not going to release you until this man has left Pakistani airspace. Um, oh, until this... left, they've got out of the country. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it's quite funny actually. When I got back, my mates were just taking the piss, saying, "Look, most people, a lot of people." get deported from Britain to Pakistan. It's the first time we've heard somebody being <laughs> deported from Pakistan back to Britain. <laughs> that's quality. Uh, no, yeah. It's true as well, though, right? I guess you could, that's one of your titles that you can hold. Yeah, I'm the one of the few people to have been deported uh, to Britain from Pakistan. Uh, so they were released a couple of days later, and yeah, I've been in touch with them ever since. Um, you know, they, it's sad. They live in kind of abject poverty. It's a forgotten place, the tribal areas. And again, as a Sikh, there's so many little gurdwari and places of important places for us that are just in disrepair. I remember Noshad saying to me, why don't you and the Sikhs do something about them? You know, we've got junkies using these temples where, you know, Holy Singh Nolwa used to pray or whatever. And, you know, there's so lots of little places there that are important to Sikhism. But because it's such an inaccessible area, they're falling into disrepair and blah, blah, blah. But I, again, I was very lucky. I managed to see some of these you know, this is where Hori Song, this is where Hori Singh used to graze his horse, or this is where such and such general Avitabla used to play something. You know, these little kind of things. Um, yeah, the, the history is still very rich, and they still do say to their children at night, "Don't cry, or Hori Singh was going to come and get you." They still say it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a real experience, both journalistically as a Sikh, as a human being. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. Looking nice. back at it, obviously, I can say that now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess because of how it panned out, you can say that, like in yeah. hindsight, right? But at the yeah. time you were going through, it's obviously a very different situation. And, and oh. now, obviously, I, I was 29 at the time. Now, I wouldn't, I'm too risk averse. And there's something about the naivety and gung ho of being 29 that you think, I'm immortal. No one's going to touch me. And so I'm, I'm going to find Bin Laden, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I had no plan about what I'm going to do when I find him. <laughs> but I'll find him though, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'll find him. And looking yeah. back at it, I, you know, I did have, if I hadn't been arrested, I had as good a chance as anybody else. Yeah. And, and since then, you know, I just love Pakistan. Um, I, so that happened in 2002. Uh, uh, National Ge- Geographic did a, a documentary, a banged up abroad about me. And as part of it, they took me back to Pakistan to meet up with Noshad six years later, or exactly on the same day as luck would have it, the day we got arrested, six years later, they filmed us being reunited and meeting each other for the first time since I left jail. And that was very emotional, as you can imagine. Well, all I can say is thank you, obviously, for making the time um, to do this. It's been a long time in the planning. Like, we've missed each other so many on so many dates. Um, but no, thank you. And also, like, thank you for sharing... Um, everything with us because i think sometimes people go through certain events and don't necessarily want to open up or share in the way you have um so all i can say is thank you for that and um, nah, my yeah. pleasure my... no thanks for having me on mate thank you and that's a wrap for today's podcast episode folks a massive shout out to our awesome youtube members jazz dylan ensign gary parmar g as let's not also forget our amazing patreon members including neil b honan pazano jazz dylan gurpreet singh gurdi bath nishmar ramni gaur rav singh ramni gaur rasman jazwar gagan singh gurpreet dhanjal and rajvinda kaur if you're passionate about the work i'm doing and want to support it consider becoming a paid youtube member to unlock some cool features or join our patreon community today find the links in the description below And thanks again for tuning in. I can't wait to bring you more exciting content. See you in the next video.